0: Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure. And today we're crossing over back to London to catch up with Damian Willoughby, which most of you would know probably from his long days with uh, Manchester City or the City Football Group here and obviously various other roles before that in, in the world of football, which we will all be going to be talking about in a bit, but is currently now the new VP of Partnerships at EA, Electronic Arts, and everyone knows what they're doing. So um, we'll get to that later. But first, let's play around and see all the fun stuff Damien did during his football career, which to some degree, I guess, started at the University of Liverpool where you did an MBA in football. Tell us a bit about it, Damien.
1: Hey, Marcus. Uh, great to catch up. And thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I guess um, a sort of formative part of my, my career was, was certainly well, the first stage in, in my career. Um, I got back from actually uh, a, a, I was on a soccer scholarship in the US. So I came back to the UK after spending four years in the States playing and studying. Oh. And I had to uh, I had to get a job and I ended up Uh, working uh, in the automotive business for a year which was uh, an interesting education but certainly taught me very quickly that I didn't want to spend the rest of my career in that space or industry so at the time the University of Liverpool was or just launched I think I was the second cohort but was effectively the first postgraduate program in football studies so it was engineered for or targeted towards people who had an interest in in kind of moving into the commercial business administrative base of of football so um, it was very uh, very nascent but felt like a, a a good place to hopefully get a platform into into what was I guess the sort of professionalizing football industry in the UK at that point as there was more money um, flowing into the game and there was a desire and a need to kind of I guess upskill across uh, the industry so I certainly benefited more from timing than ability
0: yeah makes sense so, so you played college football in the US is it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I did actually. I, you right. know, I guess like most uh, young young boys and now girls fortunately in the UK growing up, I fell in love with football, played to a pretty decent level when I was younger, kind of professional uh, ecosystem as a schoolboy at Arsenal and Norwich and Luton and then I was a, uh, I was an apprentice uh, at a YTS at Northampton Town which at the time was languishing at the kind of foot of the football pyramid but was a, was a valuable two years in terms of teaching you some life experiences and then fortunately was given an opportunity to go to the US and, and play at a reasonable level and and also get an education, which obviously anyone who's uh, spent time in the U.S. knows that that's a pretty lucrative and attractive option to explore. So I was, yeah, I was fortunate and uh, had a great time. But came back to the UK and began kind of the steps into into the football business right. that had always kind of captured my attention, and uh, yeah, fell in love. With the love the young Boys. Oh, well,
0: so. You obviously turned your passion and playing for or being in football uh, definitely into a career. Uh, fantastic. Well, that's cool to hear. Now let, let's yeah. talk a bit about then the first job coming out of. Of your MBA program, which was, uh, so as I can see here, head of sponsorship for the Rangers Football Club. Uh, we spent a pretty good seven years from the early 2000. Um, now, so how do you get from Liverpool to Glasgow? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a,
1: an interesting kind of process. Uh, you know, I guess like most uh, postgraduate programs, there was a component um, around doing an internship and spending some time, mm-hmm. I guess, out in the field doing the job. And I was fortunate enough to get I said, a, a, what was originally a, a three-month uh, window placement at Rangers that luckily for me uh, turned into seven, seven, eight years. And I, ironically, my mum is from Glasgow, um, right. and ironically, all my family are huge Celtic Uh, fan so uh, again (laughs) anyone that knows anything about the dynamic of the old firm will realize that that's quite a difficult divide to cross at times but um, yes so I actually ended up at Rangers and and I was really lucky too because at that time uh, it was a hugely respected club from a commercial and business standpoint I think at the time I left it was maybe generating revenues of about 50 million but in Deloitte's Also, actually, by the time when I joined, around 2000, they were about 15th in Deloitte's annual uh, rich list. Now, if Mm -hmm. they'd had the TV income of the Premier League, they would have been third behind Manchester United. I think we're just generating about $110 or something like that at the time. So it was a phenomenal football club, great environment to kind of learn the commercial trade of, of how clubs operate both from a you know ticketing hospitality uh, media sponsorship uh, licensing perspective um, fortunately worked for an amazing leader and CEO and a guy called Martin Bain who our past recently actually crossed the game in in the Indian Super League and, and someone I have a huge amount of respect for and is a, is a wonderful operator but he was a great mentor during that period and I said I was given um, the ability to learn and, and and grow and develop in, in Rangers and um, I think the thing I, I take most away from the experience was, you know, they a very traditional historic club that has a set of values so there was a, a football kind of industry standard and there was the Rangers way of doing things and I think they, you know, it was a, a, a great experience for me and one that I, I look back on very fondly.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. It's a great start into the industry. Now, um, you know, earlier, this is sort of, we're talking the, you know, the year 2000 to 2007 when you were there. Um, you know, and this is still, as you said, somewhat early days, right? A club of that level making 50,000 or 50, sorry, 50 million pounds I guess uh, in revenue and even the big clubs maybe we we're, were only in the hundred million here and not what we're talking about now in the hundreds of millions um was what, what's when you were selling at that time was it really mostly a local sale or were you already having conversations with you know companies from around the world or what, how would you sort of uh, describe it to you know what you've obviously did afterwards with with other clubs like city and Chelsea et cetera yeah, I, th- I think it was a pretty
1: unique um, a unique experience because, again, the the dominant position that the old firm uh, enjoys in, in Scottish football and the sensitivities that historically surrounded that rivalry mean that it is quite a, a kind of unique process to go to market for your major assets front of shirt. So at the time, we we were fortunate enough to bring on, well, NTL, I guess, was the sort of first major uh, brand that had a relationship with across both properties. Um, Then we worked uh, with Carling through two or three contract cycles, where we're the front of shirt partner. So um, it was quite a a, a unique um, set of dynamics around that because effectively you were going to market with your biggest rival, which I don't think there are too many places in the world where that happens. So we would work very closely with our uh, counterparts at Celtic in packaging up the proposal and the proposition and going to market. And I guess in answer to your question, it was mostly a domestic focused play, right, on, on Scotland with some, I guess, spillage into, into kind of the broader UK market. But I think, you know, what I reflect back on at that time is that, and I think it's a challenge that a lot of the big European clubs in smaller European media markets have wrestled with and continue to wrestle with. You know, back in the early days of my uh, my tenure at Rangers, we could compete with most clubs because we had fifty five thousand people flowing through the stadium on a on a, on a weekly basis. So that you know, the, the economic profile and complexion of teams in those big or well, those big clubs in smaller markets. So whether that's in Scotland or Portugal or Holland or Belgium or some of the Nordic markets, you could compete because your major revenue stream was anchored around match day Um, as the premier league started to really flex its commercial prowess and grow obviously the core revenue streams moved from match day across to media and effectively commercial slash sponsorship so at that point there was this sort of chasm that started to open up because if you're in a media market of five million people as Rangers and Celtic are, um, the media income that you can generate out of that domestic market and thus internationally is greatly reduced. So, yeah, the, the, the sponsorship play was absolutely a domestic-focused domestic, um, domestic focused, um, approach and, and kind of strategy.
0: Yeah, that all makes complete sense. Now, you said something interesting, and I just want to make sure I heard this correctly. You were cooperating or, or working hand-in-hand hand with Celtic to sell a package for both clubs? Is yeah. that how you did it?
1: Yeah, so we had, again, you know, given the history and the rivalry that exists, um, there was a, a perception certainly from a brand buyer side that you really couldn't align with one because you would alienate the other. Oh, uh, and wow, given, wow. again, the, do- the dominance of the two clubs, you're talking about probably 80% of the Scottish market, right? So right, right you know it got to the stage and where there was you know great leadership again from the respective owners and ceos and, and martin and you know uh you know the leadership at celtic were were very open-minded and collaborative so it made sense that we would um coordinate and work hand in hand to try and secure the best possible partnership for both clubs and it made sense for the buyer of the brand as well right so yeah um, again, uh, it,
0: it makes sense from that point of view obviously like you said you know this is the biggest rivalry or one of you know if if you think of rivalries around the world of football, this is about as big as it gets. Uh, but on the commercial side, like you're saying, rather than thinking, hey, we need to continue that rivalry, which we have on the pitch, off the pitch, we better align ourselves because otherwise people have to choose and that, that becomes hard, which is sort of easy what you're saying, right? That That is actually – I love yeah. that. That's a really clever thinking process there
1: yeah i guess i guess you know us sports have always done a better job at this of the sort of collective um approach and value to to drive into all of its um clubs and stakeholders whereas obviously you know european football is is tribal in terms of support so it's a lot harder to kind of reconcile that with the kind of fan base and i guess media but certainly you know it worked for us um with the old firm uh with carling who i think they did uh i think they they kind of committed to three contract cycles of being on the front of the shirt and really helped them establish their brand in scotland against the sort of legacy uh, traditional McEwan's brand um and we actually had a number of other partners honda Um, T-Mobile had a relationship across both clubs. So
0: um,
1: we we certainly felt the commercial uplift of being collaborative versus um, being protectionist to our own kind of territory and turf. Yeah.
0: Like I said, I, I, it's the first time I hear this, but I, I, it makes total sense, and I really like that approach. Uh, that's nice. I think there, others should think about that too. When you have these sort of rivalries, you don't have to be always rivals uh, from a financial point of view or from a marketing point of view. I like that. Nice. Uh, now, before we move on sort of, I guess, to the next one, which would be is obviously Chelsea we'll talk about in a minute, um, You know, just give me some ideas of numbers um, if you can, uh, if you remember any of the deals. So what, what deal size are we talking about? What is a jersey going for at those times? For the old firm, for Rangers, yeah, correct. Yeah, we we were probably
1: uh, yielding for the front of the shirt from recollection, a couple of million pounds a year, which again, if you if you go back to uh, the previous point around, you know, the, the the actually Rangers business was quite mature outside of the the sort of the the media rights business. So we were, you know, we were competitive on sponsorship. Retail was was always competitive with the biggest clubs, given, again, the sort of, you know, the hugely passionate fan base that, that bought uh, replica products and, and licensed products in droves. So, you know, our kind of business outside of media was really comparable to, you know, the top Premier League clubs at that time. Again, you know, if we'd have had... Premier League media income, we would have been second behind Manchester United at the mm, time in yeah, terms amazing. of the Deloitte Money List. But again, it just accentuates and, and amplifies the challenge of as the game pivoted more to uh, revenue generated for media. Uh, Rangers, you know Celtic, you know Porto, Benfica, Ajax. Bruges or other clubs from similar type markets, that's the challenge that you, you know, you can't squeeze um, the same quantum of media value when you you know, your audience is significantly smaller.
0: And the assumption is then then Celtic obviously would end up more or less with a similar deal because you guys are... <laughs> Correct, yeah. route. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, interesting. yeah, it was comparable. There may have been a little bit of nuance, but broadly it was the same.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah well, cool. Well, that that's sort of, you know, obviously, you know, spending seven years there, it's, it's a nice long time. And uh, the club win a couple of championships during that time, I have to admit, I, uh, I don't follow that closely to recall that. Yeah, we, we were pretty successful. Again, it was
1: actually a, a, a pretty strong, a good rivalry between um essentially Alex McLeese and Martin O'Neill, who I've subsequently spent a bit of time with, who were two great football people and men and um were great managers and there was a bit of ebb and flow. So Helicopter Sunday was kind of Rangers' big moment. Celtic obviously had Seville and, and had a very strong team. So it was um yeah, it was it was it was a good kind of boxing match with two heavyweights slugging it out and um but we do manage to win some silverware and obviously Rangers has gone on, I think I think is actually the most successful team in world football. I think it's won fifty five league titles. Um so it, uh, it shows and this year I think is the 125th anniversary so yeah yes. I have a, an affection and affinity towards Rangers Said it's a proper football club but you know the football in Scotland is a you know it's, it's hugely popular and you know Glasgow is a wonderful footballing city a bit like Liverpool or London or other places well, in we, the UK you
0: want to share that with your mother then so that you don't get to <laughs> trouble. yeah well
1: in true Scottish fashion my, uh, my uncles uh, slowly welcomed me back into the family when they realised I could get them tickets for old firm games so you know, <laughs> I, I was welcomed back with open arms once they
0: realized they had access to tickets there we go there's always a benefit somewhere there well right, let's talk yeah. Chelsea um Mr Abramovich took this took over the club in 203 and you joined there in what I can see here in 207 as head of platinum sponsorship first and then later on head of sponsorship international development um he spent a couple, three years in in with Chelsea now again um somewhat assuming it sort of gives you a chance to come back to London which uh, you mentioned you were originally from um, and of course, th- at that time already, I guess Chelsea is starting to do really well. I just looked it up uh, the season two or 2010 when you were there. Uh, there were a couple of runner ups in the league and, champ- and even on Champions League level. Um, eventually, they won the league in the double, I think, in, in the 2009 and 10 season. So that's sort of when you were there. So the club is doing well, winning stuff. Um, so that's a, you know, and now you're dealing with a, you know, I guess, with a league which has already a, a fairly large international profile. So, to, to, you know, compare a bit the differences and you know what you were doing then at the, at, at Chelsea.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a really a clearly exciting time at Chelsea, um, as you referenced. Uh, Roman purchased the club in in two thousand and three, and and I guess probably in the modern era, is it was um, the first real kind of football club to kind of undergo a major kind of transformation, right, from being. Like, You know, maybe not quite as competitive as it should have been to really with a massive influx and infusion of capital to build a squad that was capable of competing uh, for Premier League titles and and Champions Leagues. And so I think it was, you know, everyone in the football industry at the time was 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 probably somewhat taken aback given the scale and size of A, the investment and B, the ambition, because, again, football from my experience can be quite a traditional space and thinking about the business or the industry or or clubs in a different way is not always welcomed by the established um, heritage brands right so uh, chelsea was a really exciting place to join peter kenyon had obviously Mm -hmm. you know taken over and was 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 at the uh, was at the wheel and was doing a, a phenomenal job um, and, you know, Peter's like Martin, my, my former boss at Rangers, someone who was I count as a, a kind of mentor and a friend and someone that I'm still close to and speak to on a regular basis. But, you know, unbelievable leader, had a great um, vision you know, did really well at um, kind of articulating and galvanizing the group at Chelsea behind his vision. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed working as you pointed out, Marcus, that, you know, the club was starting to enjoy some success and on pitch and, and was sort of elevating its profile internationally. Um, And I guess our job coming in on the commercial side was to help, you know, leverage that by, growing at the partnership business, working with brands that would, you know, add value to what the club was trying to do, certainly in key markets and geographies around the world. But it was a really exciting place to be. And um, I think I probably through the transition from Rangers to Chelsea, you know, you get a sense again of the sort of meteoric kind of growth trajectory that the Premier League was on and Chelsea was certainly at the forefront of that and just a different scale of proposition and takes you into places and spaces that with the greatest respect to, you know, Rangers, as we've discussed, Rangers was very much a kind of domestic slash UK play. This was a UK slash global opportunity that was exciting and capturing the imagination of brands and fans around the world so it was a yeah really enjoyable time
0: so I'm assuming we're going from single digit millions or a million pounds into the tens of millions or, or what sort of were sort of the numbers you guys were playing with uh, at that time already
1: yeah I, th- I think that that kind of quantum shift is probably about right I mean we were um, said we were able to pretty materially grow I think as the industry was doing generally and and you know Manchester United, um, we're doing a pretty good job at that, right? Sort of um, growing a portfolio of partners outside and beyond just the traditional kind of front of shirt technical partner. Um, so yeah, we we were seeing significant growth in the value of, uh, of the Chelsea platform because people were excited by what we were doing on the pitch. And then clearly, again, London is is such a magnet for international business, trade, tourism. So yeah, it was an exciting period. And Jose Mourinho thrown into the mix was always uh, was always a good, charismatic kind of. Yeah, right. Yeah, he was there. And then you had,
0: I think you had Ancelotti as well, right, at the end. Um, so you obviously yeah, had some so... high-profile coaches too.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I, I joined and Jose, this was the, Jose's first spell, I think, left shortly thereafter. Yeah. Then there was Ancelotti, Hiddink, uh, Scolari for a period of time. Um, but yeah, some pretty, pretty iconic global football managers and uh, I guess, yeah, and as, players. You know, Yeah, and clearly a phenomenal squad that was constructed with Lampard and Drogba and Cech and all those other, uh, you know, Chelsea legends that went on to achieve so much success on the pitch. So, yeah, it was a really, really enjoyable period of time and and also a great group of people there. So, So Peter was a phenomenal leader and... You know, a number of colleagues who are, who are now lifelong friends. We worked together, Ben Wells, Andy Dart, Ed Connor, people of that ilk who uh, have all gone on to enjoy successful careers in football. And, uh, yeah, it was just a good group of people committed to trying to do something different. And uh, we worked hard and played hard, but we had a we had an amazing journey together.
0: Who, who was on the jersey at that time? Was it Samsung or who was sort of your... Samsung, yes.
1: Yeah. so Yeah, Samsung, which was, you know, a really, really successful partnership. I, I guess pre-going on the front of shirt at Chelsea, there was a perception that the Sa- Samsung... Brand was a kind of me too kind of inferior product quality um, which was totally wrong they made amazing products both consumer electronics you know TVs phones washing machines dishwashers etc but I think what Chelsea did for them clearly was give them a global platform that they could leverage but it did a phenomenal job at pivoting the perception of the brand from being a sort of me too Asian copycat tech brand to absolutely a premium top of the range uh, it's a consumer electronics business and organization so um, yeah that's a great
0: point because as long as Unless you, as old as we are, um, you think Samsung is an amazing brand, right? As, if you think of the brand now, um, but the Korean brands, whether it's LG Electronics or Samsung or Hyundai, weren't always seen as that sort of premium or as that brand they are now, um, after they spent all the millions of dollars, of course, in sponsorship, whether it's, you know, Hyundai and FIFA, and FIFA World Cup, and of course, Samsung yeah. also being an Olympic partner, etc. right? That's really where a lot of that brand affinity was driven. And I do remember when Chelsea did the deal that uh yeah it was a big deal at that time. Um we I actually had several conversations with, with Samsung people here in Asia, you know, about helping them how to Leverage it, or what to do with it, and yeah. and it was and the part which was interesting. Uh, and again, I'd love to hear your thoughts from you know being where obviously on the site where you were selling it. Uh, here in Asia, we had a couple of people I remember talking to, and they were always like, "Yeah, that's headquarter who signed all these deals, but you know, for my market, people let it be Singapore or Malaysia or Indonesia, or wherever. You know, we actually not using it. We're usually doing something else. So there wasn't always that." Um, automatic, like, oh, great, we signed up this big club, and now we're going to all leverage it. Um, How was your perception, too, when you were working with these brands? Um, How easy was it to really get a global consensus versus, okay, there's a couple of people at headquarters who think this is a great idea, and and then they kind of run with it?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really, really good and and smart question, Marcus. I mean, I I think that's always a, a bit of the challenge when you have you know, global brands that really have significant material business across the across the world, right? And yep. so th- there's always a little bit of kind of the not invented here syndrome, um, mm-hmm. and you get some of the regions will push back. Um, I do think you need, I-, I guess, the perfect storm or the perfect process is you get the regions buy into it through the negotiation and through the sales process, so that everyone is committed and and kind of aligned around this is the right property for us to invest in. That's not always. You know, easy for me the, the buy or the sell side but i think that's the the perfect storm if you can bring the regional heads or marketing cmos into the process that they have visibility and input and can help craft and shape the partnership i always have found in my experience generates the best results because then as i said it sort of mitigates the not created or invented here syndrome that sometimes happens in big global organizations but we, we with the sort of chelsea samsung um, relationship is interesting to hear your take given your vast experience um and expertise in asia as well i mean i think we did a pretty good job at, uh, at kind of coordinating the geographies and getting them to activate and leverage but um that, that you know clearly some regions will will galvanize behind the the opportunity and the platform more than others but um yeah, that, it's, exactly yeah.
0: that's normal um, <laughs>
1: I think if you can address it in the in 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 the part of the process of the process where you're crafting the partnership is is maybe a different way to think about it I think that that yields the best results and that's what we started to do um, I'm sure we'll come on to a kind of Manchester City and CFG we were able to um, you know make sure that there was proper and true alignment at the, at the, on the brand side and everyone was was excited and enthused by the opportunity but that was again a slightly different model and time but that, I think I think that's the optimal way to think about
0: it yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're sort of what we're talking about here isn't sort of Chelsea specific, you know. the clearly some of the things you were end up doing later on with, with City uh, is similar. Right? Again, you were in a similar role there, selling global partnerships, and so this is obviously your space really, um, the the commercial side of of uh, partnerships. Uh, you know, when, why you were there at Chelsea? Is there a particular one you you kind of you have in your head? Um, you worked on uh, which you're proud of? Um, you know, we could talk about for a minute.
1: Uh, actually, yeah, a brand that's probably uh, close and dear to you, Singer, um, which right. is obviously an iconic, I- iconic Thai beer brand. We constructed a relationship with them, which actually still exists at Chelsea to this day. So right. it, it was one that was, uh, you know, again, you know, phenomenally uh, successful uh, Thai Asian brand that was looking to globalise. So Thank they actually beer. invested in that, and had partnerships with Chelsea, Manchester United, Ferrari. So sure. they really again. Bought in and were committed to utilising sport as a way to uh, elevate the profile of the brand, educate people on what a phenomenal taste experience and product it is, and you know ultimately help drive uh, international sales, which it did for them. You know, right. and I think you know for most people in Europe they'll be very familiar with the Singer brand now. And um, you know, again, is a is it was a great partnership, great people, really enjoyed working with the family. And they said it's it's nice to see that it still exists uh, and it's still a relationship that's endured yeah, at Chelsea actually, to this day. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm in Bangkok now and you're right. There are still actually some buildings here, some big billboards where you have the Chelsea Singer brand there, um, which is great. So – now, again, let's, let's stick to that for a minute. Um, a Beer, beer, uh, again, anyone who's been to Thailand would probably recognize it. Doesn't mean it's, you know, everyone would, would have heard of it. See, it's a very, you know, it's a very large, uh, beer brand here in the country. Um, and had, you know, and as you already said, kind of used, uh, especially football uh, as a springboard to go global. Uh, whether then also the pouring partner, so that you would, you know, yeah. it all, it would also get it at the stadium or?
1: Yeah so they, they they built out a uh, production manufacturing hub in, in Germany and it supplied product into into the UK so they were okay. acquiring a partner at the stadium, both um, Stamford Bridge and Old Trafford, and you know again generated significant um, exposure to the brand, but obviously the opportunity to taste, sample, and and try the product, which hopefully people liked, and then uh, continued drinking when they saw it in Tesco's or Sainsbury's or other retailers in the UK. Right, so right. I think the other thing that was really interesting, Marks, and it's it's funny you talk about the the big outdoor uh, media sites that are still visible in Bangkok. I mean they also did a phenomenal job at helping Chelsea penetrate, as you know better the most people a football crazy market in Thailand where premier league football is is so uh, all consuming um it really helped again kind of elevate and cement chelsea's position as a brand versus some of the more heritage historic brands in that market like united and liverpool which again I know is close to your heart at the moment
0: yeah they're coming here in a few days for a big match <laughs> yes
1: well i'm sure it'll be a phenomenal event given again the level of support that both of those clubs enjoy there and yeah. um, you know and certainly, yeah, yeah. I think Chelsea is probably comparable to that now, given you know a lot of the work that they did in the region and in the market. But thanks in, in no small part to uh, how much Singer activated domestically.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, this is the what they call the red war. Uh, maybe next time we need to bring the blue guys out, right? Chelsea and Man <laughs> City here. Why not?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. I'm sure, I'm sure both of those clubs would be interested in coming, given uh, yeah, the game. the, the the level of support that, that they enjoy in, in Thailand.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's move a bit along here um, because before we get to uh, city, uh, there was a couple of little stops in between here. I think you spend a few years in the U S with a group called James Grant sports group. Uh, tell a bit, talk a bit yeah. about that.
1: Yeah. So I, I kind of did three years at Chelsea. There was a bit of a kind of leadership change and um, it felt like uh, the right time to move on. I guess my my ambition from when i started working in football is uh, is is kind of i always felt and wanted that I, you know i could do a good job at a CEO level so kind of being a CEO of a club and always kind of been in my longer term kind of career plan and thought and process and clearly I felt I had some pretty good experience on the business commercial side of, of how you know major football properties and clubs operate but I didn't have any real visibility into uh, the playing the football side of the, the the operation and clearly for any club the biggest area of investment and cost is is on the football side so yeah. I was given an opportunity to to join a a small agency. Ironically, again, talking about kind of serendipity of relationships and and, and people you meet on your journey. Um, When I was 16 and, oh, sorry, when I was 18, I met a gentleman by the name of Mick McGuire, who was at the time the number two uh, in the PFA, and he helped me go to the US on a soccer scholarship. And then right. years later, um, he was working for James Grant in the UK in their talent representation agency business. And they were looking for someone to, to join the US operation. And, and that's how that kind of opportunity came about. And so at the time with my wife and eldest daughter to Washington DC, where James Grant was based, and they were probably uh, one of two dominant kind of agencies in the US soccer landscape. And, you know, we had at the time, I think, you know, sort of 16 of the 24 uh, from the uh, national team squad, the likes of Clint Dempsey and Carlos Bocanegra and Josie outador and okay. Moadu and others. So um, the sort of business model was predicated on identifying you know U.S. talent, and then migrating them to Europe, where aspirationally they wanted to play, and obviously the economic rewards were were greater for them, and also the agency. So yeah, so I, I joined the agency, uh, did that for a couple of years. Um, I, I think I realised pretty quickly that the agency business wasn't really like Jerry Maguire. Um, it was <laughs> you have to be a a certain type of individual to really excel uh, and I was I was really amazed certainly on the talent side that you have to be this Combination of father figure, best friend, psychologist, lawyer, accountant—you know—you have to provide all of these um, kind of skills and, and viewpoints and, and expertise—and it, it just wasn't for me. That you, again, certain people are, are phenomenal and brilliant at it, but it, it wasn't really—it really wasn't in my wheelhouse. But that being said, it did give me great exposure and insight into, you know, how you manage and represent talent and the costs involved in player recruitment and player content Contracts and player endorsement deals. So it was a good experience. It was a great learning. Um, but ultimately, I realised pretty quickly it wasn't. Um, it wasn't a space in the broader industry that I really wanted to kind of double down on.
0: Right, right. Oh, no, interesting. So that then that swings us back uh, to City. Um, I guess uh, which uh, dangled a carrot here to bring you back to the UK. Uh, now we're in the year sort of 2013. Uh, again, um, the new ownership, uh, with, uh, Sheikh Mansour has been around now for a couple of years. I think he came in in eight, right? Uh, I bought yeah. it from a uh, buddy here in Thailand, Taksin. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, again, the club is, uh, is obviously another sort of Chelsea, you know, is, is, is some parallels there. A lot of money new is pouring in. The club is yeah. doing well. And now you're coming in here um, again, sort of, you sort of, you know, on the ground floor there in the sales space. I leave uh, in the in Manchester City Football Club before later on. Obviously, you have roles in, as head of global partnership. Um, then you get you going into Asia Pacific um, as VP, uh, and down the line we we're landing here at CEO of City Football India, and, and we'll get to a couple of these stops uh, sort of step by step here. But um, so you know, tell us the transition, I guess, coming back from the US. Uh, Uh, back to the UK?
1: Yeah, I I guess um, to to the point around, you know, the talent and the agency and the representation space, I I realized wasn't for me. And I think it just crystallized in my head that, you know, being rights holder property side in a club environment was, was much more uh, aligned with probably my, my skills and my experience and my ambitions. So the opportunity came about to join Manchester city, you know, again, uh, timing in life is, is, is everything. I guess to your point, you know, the club had been acquired uh, by Sheikh Mansour uh, back in 2008. Again, hugely ambitious project. A phenomenal leadership that was brought in to help kind of craft and shape and then deliver against this vision. Um, so you know, again, I have uh, nothing but huge respect and admiration for for Caldoun. He's a tremendous, tremendous leader. Uh, you know, the board that exists at Manchester City again is a is a phenomenally talented and committed group. In you know, Simon Pierce and Marty Edelman and John McBeath and you know, really well respected, um, credible, smart, global business executives and. Yeah, so I joined in 2013. Um, the club had started to enjoy some success. I guess sort of characterised by Sir Alex's comments around the noisy neighbours, but we were, you know, <laughs> starting starting to make an impression uh, competitively against against some very mature uh, heritage brands in in the Premier League, and our goal and our mandate and remit was to to go out and start to again develop the club from a uh, global brand perspective and start to align uh, with partners that that you know would would see value in the strategy that we were deploying and the direction of travel that we were on but um yeah again it was a great time uh, you know manchester city great people smart people we we had a great group uh there uh, tom glick who again i count as a friend uh to this day and a mentor and and someone I, I i hugely respect and admire lots of really smart people at the club doing really creative different things so yeah it was a great time and, and as you know one of my closest and best colleagues at, at city is a guy called stefan siplik who i know you have a long and illustrious past with but we uh we were given freedom and latitude to go out into the market and try and craft amazing partnerships that were value additive to our growing global fan base
0: yeah absolutely Uh, Stefan is a great guy spent many years with us at TSA in his uh, early days uh, coming straight from Germany uh and well, then
1: you, then you, you, cer- you certainly instilled a, a great work uh, ethic and a, an unbelievable ability to connect with people so he uh yeah he has nothing but amazing things to say about his time with you marcus so yeah, as you know he's I'm a great sure. character i
0: yeah, know that's nice to hear and now Stefan is a great guy and uh, i know you had an amazing career with you uh, with sit well, was not with you and so much with city um yeah. and uh, obviously i think recently left but uh yeah he's definitely enjoyed his time there as well um now let, let's talk about city then because city is not just city right there's a whole bunch of cities um, on the back of it, uh, um, and I think you were a bit part of that growth, uh, where it went beyond just being the Manchester City Club, of course, on its own. Um, and I'm assuming that was always somewhat part, I guess, of the strategy that it was really um, multi, a multifaceted group. Um, that's why it's called City Football Group, uh, which you, you know, sort of, you know, went into then um, later on. So, you know, talk us a bit through this. Uh, what I've saw is that they now have twelve clubs, and and I, maybe during your time it was a little less than that. But uh, you know, everything we're talking New York City, uh, Melbourne City. You have the Yokohama Mariners, which is obviously in to- near Tokyo. You have Mumbai City. You have a club in China. Uh, you have team in Spain, Italy, and you know, and a few others. So. I mean, it's just huge diversity. Um, how? What was? I mean, just just talk us through from what you know, being inside the club. What? What? What was the strategy behind it, really?
1: Yeah, I guess, I guess it was it was effectively the, the sort of brainchild of, of Ferran, who again is a you know hugely impressive leader. You know, intellectually uh, formidable. And, you know, actually, if you read his book uh, that he uh, wrote during his time at Barcelona, you actually see some of the seeds of City Football Group germinating um, from his time there because he was I think he was trying to buy um, an MLS franchise in in Miami or New York. I can't remember which city, but he he certainly felt that there was space in the in the global football industry to create a truly global network of clubs Mm -hmm. uh, and clearly. You know, at Barcelona, that was probably a little bit more challenging to deliver, given the the makeup of the the membership base yeah. and and the way that the club is structured and formed. Obviously, at Manchester City and with City Football Group, and uh, it was a case of convincing uh, and showcasing to the ownership that this strategy had uh, significant um, footballing and commercial value, which which it does. So, when I joined in thirteen, probably about a year in, the first. Uh, I guess acquisition investment was made with New York City. So the club acquired uh, the franchise to to own and operate New York City, which went on to actually win MLS Cup last year after uh, a number of years. But so New York was the kind of first um, investment, then quickly thereafter Melbourne, and then it started to evolve and capture clubs in uh, these different geographies. And I think there is, you know, slightly different motivations and ambitions for each of the investment, but ultimately it's about creating knowledge, expertise at the centre, which can support the growth and development of each of these clubs. And the reality is each of the clubs is at different stages of its e- evolution, right? So in Manchester, you have a, a brand and a club that's over 100 years old and has you know rich history, whereas in New York, you are literally creating a club from scratch, yeah, club, brand, yeah. team, in India, which I obviously had a lot of exposure uh, and um, involvement in, you know, the league is still pretty nascent. It's eight years old, so you have these clubs at different stages in their in their histories, and each has different requirements. Again, some operate in salary capped environments, some op- operate in free market. So, but there is so much knowledge, expertise right across the spectrum of um, skill sets and functions that you need to operate football clubs, whether that's clearly on the sporting side. So, CFG has. I think something like 60 plus uh, scouts around the world uh, originally when they were Uh, hired they were focused on Manchester City now they have 12 clubs actually Manchester City or City Football Group just announced they acquired Palermo uh, in Italy yesterday which I think think Uh, is the 12th club. Correct. So so you have this sort of reservoir of knowledge and expertise that that you could call upon to support the development of the clubs in the different regions so um, from a commercial standpoint Marcus I think it was a really eloquent um, and well-shaped and well-crafted Proposition, because you touched upon it a little bit before, around that how do you have a global property that regional markets buy into? Well, Mm. you know, in some ways, what CFG created was a bit, you know, some of the best elements of Formula One that you have this. You know, hugely powerful global platform um, in Manchester City and its reach and resonance that it has with, you know, 500 million plus fans around the world. But then if you're a North American centric business, you could activate with New York or Manchester City. Or if you're an Asia business, you we had a club in Japan that we were uh, minority shareholders in or China or India. So right. in effect, you could offer... Uh, we could offer our partners, you know, a sort of complete and, and pretty eloquent solution to their needs, whether it was global or regional or more biased to certain parts of the world. So I think that really resonated when we started to talk about the model of multi-club ownership and properties in key uh, economic and footballing markets around the world, that really resonated with uh, CEOs and CMOs or global directors of sponsorship because they got it instantly, right? Again, as, 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 as most people would do. So it really was for us the point of difference that enable us to really accelerate and grow the commercial business uh, in Manchester, but also accelerate the growth of these other clubs that we'd invested into, To I guess to the point of Manchester City, that obviously they again topped the Deloitte Money League and were the number one uh, revenue generating club. Some of that obviously a bit of a function of the COVID years and match day, but you know, it was testament, I guess, to that original vision and idea that Ferran had that people rallied around and, and uh, you know, the, again exceptionally talented leadership with committed ownership and it was a, you know, a real real pleasure to be part of that and, and hopefully contribute a little bit along the way
0: no, no, and it makes again everything you're saying makes complete sense. Uh, and, and obviously, having always been a bit in touch with Stefan and and seeing some of the deals you guys were doing here in the region, um, you know, a lot of times the announcement was clear. It wasn't just about uh, you know Manchester City. It was always linked to then whatever a, a Japanese brand who also did something with Yokohama or Chinese yes. brand or you know an Indian brand, etc. And, and I think the you know. I uh, guess you know the creativity. I guess it gives you guys to create and bundle things up in a different way. I think uh, is, is pretty exciting. So I, I like that. I, I can see that for as a being a sponsorship guy myself and having sold similar stuff over the years, uh, I can see how that can be a bit of fun there. Um, give me yes, a, for, maybe for you have a, an example. An
1: um, yeah, I mean we we. we this was relatively early on, but we were we were fortunate enough to uh, secure Hayes, the global recruitment um, business, mm-hmm. as a partner. And they were, I think, the creativity and innovation that Man City was starting to develop and, and show to the, the sort of business community was starting to shine through. But they they absolutely bought into the vision of having relationships in these key markets. So they had a burgeoning business in North America, they had a business in Japan. So again, as we evolved our group and we sort of shared with them, this is the vision, they, they started to invest in and leverage relationships with the clubs around the world. So you know I think at, at one point during our tenure we had something like twenty five to thirty brands that had multiple investments in different clubs. Um, Nissan was obviously a, a big partner uh, mm-hmm. given the investment we both had in the Marinos, but they recognized the power of the global sponsorship platform that we created. Uh, obviously, Etihad SAP um, was another brand that really recognized uh, the ability to tell a, a narrative from kind of pitch to boardroom utilizing their technology to help us run and operate better teams both set on the pitch but also uh, the business environment so you know we were fortunate we we worked with some you know r- really really talented marketeers who could leverage and harness the power of the group and um, again from a from a property perspective it really was a point of difference so for our, always you know would tell a great story because you know for a number of years city was the challenger brand again trying to break into um you know the established heritage kind of club space and you can't just follow the same path right it's a bit like you know fran's analogy was the was the boat right and you know the america's cup you can't kind of follow the same path as the as the boat in front because you'll never catch up so you had to take and chart a different course in order to accelerate your growth and i think this innovative different unique approach of having a portfolio and group hubs really did uh, resonate and uh, attract a lot of brands into our into our universe so yeah it was a great time and fortunate to to do some incredible work and work with some yeah Fantastic brands uh, and partners, and fortunately still close with a lot of the uh, CEOs and, and CMOs that we work with before to this day. So
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I I, I remember some of the numbers uh, you guys were pulling here out of Asia, which was an unbelievable. Um, you know, I know what Manu and some of that, say the sort of traditional big clubs were doing, but um, these were serious deals. Um, now, here is one, one obvious question is: um, How do you break? the pie into the right pieces. Um, So if someone writes a check for pick a number, $5 million, uh, who gets what? Um, Is that predetermined or, or what is the formula? (laughs) <laughs> that's
1: a very smart question marcus and one that we uh we deliberated and debated uh ad nauseum at, at cfg i mean we we finally got to a place there was a bit of a ratio and mechanism um, that we would apply but ultimately i guess the key the key driver was around you know which assets and, and what was the the value that each of the clubs was providing but okay. um i think there, there is no doubt that You know, the ability to leverage Manchester City uh, was advantageous and beneficial to, you know, a Melbourne City or in the case of the club that I was running during my uh, last role at City, you know, Mumbai City. So, yeah, it, it wasn't an exact science, but over time we got to a position that that everyone was happy. Ultimately, we needed to make sure that the brand was happy with what assets and, and what the relationship looked like at that particular club. But we also needed to make sure that the CEOs at the club were happy. They were satisfied from an economic and, and a partnerships perspective. So not an exact science, but we started to apply a bit of rigor and a, sort of a ratio of of uh, money that would, I guess, go into the different buckets of the club.
0: And, and, and to some it doesn't matter so much if it when, in, uh, when you own the club fully, right? But uh, like you said, with your Yokohama, I think you you're not you're not own it hundred percent, right? So that that's where it gets a little more complicated, I guess, when you have a other partners in the pie, right?
1: Yes, yeah. There, there is a bit of uh, there's a bit of kind of question about you know dilution of the revenue and and how it's structured in terms of equity. But yeah, uh, we, we we actually did a pretty good job with the Yokohama. To your point, you know our business in APAC really was the engine room of our growth and, and again, you are no better than than the, the most you know the, the sort of football business. Uh, historically was kind of fixated on Southeast Asia because of the, again, the level of fanaticism, right. the support that, that originates out of Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, et cetera. But what we certainly experienced as it related to our business in Asia, um, it really started to pivot to, to North Asia. Right, We were doing um, a lot of business in Japan, given our relationship with Nissan and the Marinos. So we were doing uh, a lot more business in China as China was starting to become you know, fixated with the global game. Uh, and Korea uh, was a great market for us, and we had a, you know, our first sleeve partner in Nexen Tire from there. So we started really to see a, a shift in uh, opportunity and revenue from Southeast to, to North Asia over over the time that, that I was certainly uh, running uh, the global partnerships business.
0: Yeah, well. I remember that. And, and again, it somewhat makes sense, right? The, the, the firepower out of North Asia in terms of economic uh, power is mm-hmm. obviously much stronger than South Asia, even though the fan base clearly is probably, be, you know, it, it, from a fanatic point of view, yes, it's probably even bigger here, um, but clearly, you know, the money, isn't quite as strong here, so that all makes sense. Yeah. So you obviously you spent about you know three four years here in Singapore uh, in these various roles, and and then you ended up uh, at City Football Club. Uh, sorry, City Football India. Uh, were you based in India or were you running this from where?
1: Yeah, so I guess the, the rationale and the reason, so as, as, as City Football Group was starting to kind of evolve and permeate as a multi-club model, we felt at the, the group level it made sense um, as it relates to our partnerships business to kind of break it down into the three regions, so North America, obviously, AMIR and, and, and APAC, and we wanted to have presence, expertise, boots on the ground in the different regions so that 's when I moved to Singapore to to help establish uh, the APAC business and again had a phenomenally talented group Stefan uh, Sarah White, and others who you know really knew the region, understood the cultural dynamics and, and nuance of um, you know uh, the size of the geography and and the different markets. So yeah, so established the business in Singapore, and then I, when I was running the global business, I actually stayed in Singapore. So which seems ridiculous now, but I used to spend like 200 days of the year on the road traveling, going to our partners or prospects, which seems ludicrous in a post-COVID era. But so I was in Singapore actually for about six years. The last no. year and a half, I was I was commuting between Singapore and India. Um, clearly, th- th- those. Those years were impacted and affected by COVID. So um, when we acquired Mumbai City uh, back in October of 19, um, it was kind of midway through the season. So we had a bit of a watching brief. Um, So I spent sort of six months traveling between the two and then got back to Singapore in March of 20, if my my math is right. And that's when kind of COVID hit and everyone was everyone was uh, everyone was uh, kind of imprisoned uh, wherever they were right with uh, no travel and uh, everyone having more priorities and life to worry about so um, and then I went back to India but we had uh, the season uh, behind closed doors in Goa which was an interesting interesting experience okay. operating a league and and literally living in a biosecure bubble um, in goa at the hotel where the only place we could go is the hotel the training
0: ground and the stadium so um, yeah, yeah India was, India obviously it, got hooked Pretty hard, hit hard. Not not right at the beginning, but a bit later on during COVID, it, it obviously was a was a real mess there, um, and I'm sure yeah, that, that affected anything in the way really the football there as well. Yeah, we
1: I think we were the first sport in India, the Indian Super League, to to operate in a you know in under the sort of shadow of COVID, and it was tough. You know, we were getting tested every two days, and, and literally we were. We, we'd sort of sectioned off a portion of a hotel. So we were um, isolated from any other uh, visitors or guests, but it was, yeah, it was, it was a tough environment, but actually was, um, was a great experience. And we went on to, to win the league and, and the playoffs. Right. Which
0: we- now, now I have a question on the, on the player side of things. Uh, I don't know if there's an example you have where a player, you know, you've, you, you nurture and identify in one of those clubs around the world. And now eventually he lands at, you know, the big one in, city uh, manchester city um is that all a big part of it um that is just you know, you know besides the branding which you know which we well covered and i think everyone can get the head around it, that it makes complete sense and it's a great model and if uh, you, you know, all these clubs can be also let's say on their own pnl level be profitable or or wash their nose, then it's, you know, fantastic value added to the whole ecosystem. It's very easy to see from, from let's say, a financial point of view. Uh, but what is it from a p- real playing point of view? You know, is it is that really happening? Do you see that? Uh, is there some examples you have? Yeah, I think I, I think probably the best
1: examples and, and uh, Brian Marwood, who runs effectively the sort of football business um, for, for all the clubs outside of Manchester City. Um, Brian, again, is a tremendously uh, impressive guy, great you know, experience, you know, revered all around the world, Um, tremendous, tremendous operator and a great person. So he effectively kind of runs all of the football operations outside of Manchester. So Mm -hmm. um, I guess the examples the group would... I assume would probably referenced is um, Jack Harrison, who was signed. He was actually an English guy, but signed for New York City because he went through the collegiate system similar to I did many okay. years ago. But clearly, I wasn't as talented. He, he signed for New York City. Okay. Uh, and then he actually was acquired by Manchester City, but went out on a couple of loans and then obviously was ultimately sold to Leeds United for a significant, significant fee so he kind of worked his way through the system and benefited from the group connectivity the other one that was was a you know uh, really successful was the australian player aaron moy who again played for our, uh, our club in Australia, in Melbourne City, was, you know, the best player in the A-League by a country mile. Manchester City then acquired him. And then again, he went out on loan to a couple of places and was ultimately ultimately sold. I think it's difficult, right, because there is, you know, there's such a, a kind of jump in level and quality from, you know, playing for uh, one of our teams, or one of sorry, our teams, one of City's teams in uh, Australia or or India to Manchester City, right? Manchester City is operating in such a narrow, small pool of talent that sure. can go into that club and make a difference. But I think where the benefit has absolutely been realised is that you create these different clubs and pathways so that the players... Can- can develop and mature, and then you have an opportunity to move them from, you know, New York to Girona or to Trois or but then ultimately, as a, as an asset, you're able to materially and significantly grow that. So right. the economic upside of having a portfolio. Um, is is actually very powerful, and it's a it's it's a major part of uh, the business that City Football Group has at its disposal now. So yeah, um, I think they've done done a great job at that. And again, under the tutelage and guidance of, of Brian and now Omar Barada, who's been at the group and the club for a long period of time, is also heavily involved. It's a, it's a really smart business, and we have. S- City have smart people running it that enables you to materially grow value and also create pathways for players that, with respect, other clubs can't because they don't have that that, that group philosophy. And ultimately, I guess, Marcus, that's why you're seeing there are a number of um, investment houses, VC groups, trying to replicate Absolutely. in some way, shape, or form um, the CFG club portfolio model, both from a uh, commercial standpoint, probably more from a sporting standpoint.
0: Yep. No, no, yeah, absolutely. Yep, there are a few out there who uh, who sort of modeling it. I'm not saying they're as successful and or high-profile as, uh, as City was or is. Um, but And it makes sense, uh, what you're saying. It's not always the ultimate goal that everyone ha- ends up having to land at, at Manchester City. But yes, you can go across the the different clubs and you still, obviously, as a player, grow um, and, uh, and the, and the, the group benefits from that. So that makes complete sense. Uh, I like it. I mean, like I said, it's fascinating and, and, uh, and definitely many people around the world, I'm sure, are watching it and, and trying to see how you learn from it. So, um, you know, and you've been right in the middle of it now
1: yeah it was, it was I think the fun part again which you realize when you have some perspective on on your career a bit Marcus is that you know the ability to grow and build something is a lot of fun right yeah, and, and we were fortunate at a city again given the the commitment of the ownership and and our leadership yeah. you know they they believed in the model and we were given the freedom and latitude to go out and build and deliver something that's you know pretty special and again I think you know everyone at a city you know really smart people but hugely dedicated and committed and they built a phenomenal business which obviously is now hugely valuable um, given you know recent valuations and um, i think it was a really smart and clever way to think about the business in a unique and innovative um, style and for me you know said the fun part was being part of a team that was able to go and build and deliver that and i'm sure it will continue to grow and be even more successful given the quality and caliber of people under caldoon's leadership it's a uh, yeah really interesting Business model that I'm sure many will continue to try and uh, copy and, and look at and learn from.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a fascinating space, and uh, and that's why we've been talking about it. Um, now, and, and this is a good segue into it as well. Now, you know, when you're looking at uh, the timing here in the sort of middle of two twenty one here, we're sort of still, uh, you know, in the middle of COVID to some degree. And Many of us, including myself, um, uh, were looking at our traditional world of sports and going, "Who? Hm, it's it's hurting, right?" And it was, and it still is, somewhat obviously just slowly coming out of it. Uh, but the world of gaming and esports was growing like crazy, and every other day there is a story about the next big, um, you know, billion-dollar deal or or other things growing with massive numbers globally around the world. Uh, and I'm assuming some of that attracted you, or maybe uh, you know, maybe there was a different reason, but uh, that clearly is what attracted me to the to the space uh, several years back, uh, and that's why we're in there now. So I own actually when I say I, we as a group own uh, several esports teams, uh, playing yeah. different type of sports here. Uh, we have a gaming platform in in, in Asia, um, and the part I love most about it that it wasn't relying on. Um, you know, physical activities. You know, we can. You know, gaming is very an online game uh, in a spectator to some degree, right? And so that was yep. really what what I loved about it. How did you end up then into EA, which is obviously what we want to talk about now? How did you make that transition here?
1: Yeah, it's it, it was obviously a, you know um, a brand and an organization that I had you know pretty good proximity to, um, given the various rights holders that I was fortunate enough to work for over the years. So mm-hmm. I think I had. A partnership with EA dating back to my, my time at Rangers and then obviously Chelsea and Man City and so I, I'd always knew the business and the organization and I, I kind of had a good exposure to them from the outside looking in it always felt like a great business and a great culture again uh, with populated by, by really smart people so you know, it was one of the few non-club related, I guess, businesses that always had a bit of an attraction and appeal for me. And as I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do both personally and professionally and where the family was going to be based after our amazing experience in Asia, I, you know, there was, a, there was an opening and opportunity as EA was starting to try and think a bit more purposefully around kind of what the opportunity for esports looked like. So, yeah, I joined the business uh, last July And uh, I guess, you know, coming up for just a year now uh, and a couple of weeks. And it's been, you know, a really, really uh, interesting, exciting and uh, kind of informative journey. Again, totally different scale of business. You know, most football clubs are relatively... Uh, small in revenue perspective and terms, right, and yep. uh, relatively small organizations. Um, and you go to a business like EA that's you know thirteen thousand people around the world and you know eight wow. nine million dollar turnover. It's a it's a it's a it's a huge organization. And then you have some of the complexities of COVID and not being in an office, which makes it more challenging. But they certainly uh, you know the sort of underlying ethos and ambition in, uh, for EA is is kind of utilizing play and obviously playing video games, amazing video games have a world-class portfolio of intellectual property, um, but encouraging, inspiring the world to play games, right? Because, you know, when that happens, you know, kind of the magic happens, right? People are creative, satisfied, you know, it's uh, happy, excited, you know, it's so it really is a phenomenal business that enjoyed, you know, significant, significant growth during the challenging times of COVID because to your point, people weren't able to meet in person, therefore utilizing technology and and media to be able to play and interact with your friends and family from around the world was was something that people really relied on I think to you know keep them sane and safe and you know on an even kill. so yeah the business really enjoyed some unprecedented growth during COVID and what the business is still trying to figure out a little bit is is how they think about esports you know I think part of the challenge a little bit for as I've learned because I've had to learn a new industry and a new space is I think all the major publishers wrestle a little bit, and you'll probably know this again from your experiences. You know, is esports a uh, a vehicle in service of the brand, uh, the you know the overall game, yes, or should it be a standalone PL? and I think you know that that thinking has probably fluctuated over the years. Uh, you know, with most of the publishers and you know i think ultimately that's why there is a number of people from our universe that have kind of gravitated into the world of gaming and esports because it's still you know clearly a huge business but it's still pretty embryonic and nascent when you look at it in the grand scheme of revenue generating properties around the world but there is absolutely no doubt that it is a juggernaut and will continue to be that i think it probably just needs to figure out how how you drive value from the audience and you ultimately add value to that audience right and I, I think that's the bit that again based on my limited experience in the space i think people still struggle with a little bit whether that's esports teams or the publishers or right. the tournament operators so yeah it'd be interesting to get your view given your obviously intimate experience uh, in the space now yeah well. no
0: no yeah definitely i want to talk about it but at first i want to just uh... Just make sure that we really everyone understands when they hear EA, Electronic Arts, uh, because I think for most people the first thing they will think of is FIFA, uh, which is probably yeah. potentially the most famous game they have. Um, at least I say for the sporting world, you know the groups uh, our our traditional world of sports here. Uh, but there's obviously a ton of other games which again not everyone would know. Um, one of the bigger ones is Apex Legends, which is yeah. a huge game. Um, I've seen other things like Battlefield, The Sims. Uh, Obviously, you have other sports-related ones with Madden NFL. Um, I think there's some NHL games as well. Uh, I think there's even something with the NBA. Um, So there's a whole range of things. Which part are you involved in? Are you working across all of it or are you very specifically on a particular game or what's your current role there?
1: yeah you're right EA has I guess heritage and and history and it's positioning as it's always been the undoubted market leader in sports simulation uh, Mm -hmm. games and and clearly to your point our FIFA franchise is kind of generation defining culturally iconic um, hugely hugely profoundly uh, connected to to, to players around the world now so and then you're right you know um, uh madden uh, nhl uh, f1 you know any sports simulation game of note really is, is is an ea title um and then as you referenced there are a number of other sort of genres of, of games that we make in battlefield and sims and apex actually i'm off to uh rally in north carolina uh, on thursday because apex uh, has a big esports event their, their global series finale there actually, so we have a um, team there <laughs> yes. All right. Great. Well, uh, you'll need to connect me with your guys. I'll, I'll say hello and uh, wish them good luck. Um, the uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I, I, I kind of joined the business to focus on our, our on the e-sports verticals, and effectively there are there are three currently: obviously FIFA, Apex, and Madden. Um, again of of those three i guess fifa is the one that has most global relevance and opportunity but apex has this you know significant momentum and energy behind it now and is growing you know really at a rapid rate of knots in terms of popularity and engagement around the world so i was kind of brought into kind of think about the commercial strategy and plan around our esports verticals the, the slight challenge with uh, the football business is that, you know, it's the most uh, licensed IP in the world. You know, we have something like 350 licenses around the world. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's not, not quite the same as some of our competitors who effectively own the IP and can do anything they want with it. There are much more uh, complexities and nuance around leveraging uh, our football business, given all the relationships that are, you know, many many years and, and and deep across the world. So yeah, so I was brought in to build out a kind of commercial strategy plan across esports from a you know potentially franchise opportunity, m- you know, media rights, sponsorship, licensing events, but but a lot of that obviously was put on ice during during COVID because it was uh, it was challenging to kind of deliver against some of that. Stuff.
0: So you know because they were all as VP partnerships. So, oh, um, again, immediately out. The first thing I would think of is your job is bring in partners, as in sponsors, or whatever we're going to call them. You know, commercial partners into the game. Yeah. Uh, is that part of it, or like you said earlier as well, part of it is also to. Do- Further develop what what people would refer to now as esports, which are big tournaments, and you know maybe again there, and that's the part I like most about when I went first went into this whole you know gaming esports space is that. There is plenty of um, synergies with with our old world, right? There is There are events, yeah. there are players, there are teams, um, you know, there yeah. is content. So, you know, the monetization models are, again, somewhat similar. And in some cases, I would say sports, traditional sports is much further developed in the commercialization side of it, right? Um, the numbers we pull in, you know, esports can pull from viewerships are huge and, and. But it doesn't mean it generates necessarily the same amount of dollars, especially in the TV space, right? You know, because most of those stream for free, so it's completely different models there in many cases. Um, you know, but like I said, you know, teams have sponsors on the jersey, and you know, and, and you have individual players, and whether they're influencers or you know streamers, you know, have can generates millions of dollars, of course, around it. So there is a lot of those things which you know you can compare to athletes and, and teams in general. But so, which exactly is sort of your current remit there, um, in in, in that sense? Yeah, it's again, it's a a really personal work in progress. (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, yeah, I mean, I I think initially, certainly the the plan and ambition was to build out our esports business. So, you know, kind of totality around uh, building out effectively a property uh, akin to the sports model that you had multiple revenue streams that you could could leverage. Mm. Um, I think where the business is at at the moment, and it's and it's kind of an interesting dynamic that I've had to wrap my head around, Marcus, is that it's trying to kind of figure out the right way to integrate brands into into the entire ecosystem. So not just esports, but into the into the game environment, into the mobile platforms. And that's, you know, complex because of the development times involved in producing these, you know, blockbuster titles and franchises, which are, you know, years in the making often. So and I think you're right, there's a lot of synergy. And similarity and parallels between sport and esports and gaming but clearly totally different audiences and there's a way that i think that you have to approach it in the in the gaming esports genre because you have to be very respectful of that relationship that the players have with the game and the title right um as you do in real sport but i think it's the sensitivity is maybe even greater given the options that, that younger players and demographics have at their disposal so we are trying to kind of figure out now what's the right approach to 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 brand partners showing up in in kind of the various ecosystems uh, around our key core franchises. I think the interesting part, which you touched upon, is actually it's such an attractive and powerful platform for brands because of the level of to your point audience engagement. You know the the profile of the audience is hugely attractive and in the sweet spot for most brands. You know young, well educated, high disposable income, high propensity to technology. You know all the sort of boxes that you would want to tick uh, as a property you know esports and gaming has at its disposal in a way that arguably um, sports doesn't I think I was speaking to someone a few weeks ago and they they sort of described it which I thought was really eloquent that you know uh, in some ways Gaming has kind of cracked the code with a sort of B 2 C relationship because of obviously the, the again the connectivity that a player has to the game. You know, you understand how frequently they play, um, the ability to uh, create value from that relationship that you know the the publishers have done a phenomenal job at. But actually, they haven't quite cracked the code on the B 2 B part of how do you work with brands that really can come into the into into the space and add value. Um, and I thought it was an interesting way to think about it because um, I, I hadn't sort of thought about it through that lens, but I thought it was quite an eloquent um, uh, eloquent way to think. Yeah,
0: I think there's a lot of room for improvement, for sure. Um, and, you know, and I see it every day, you know, when we talk to brands about um, our teams or, or the platforms, um, there's an unbelievable amount of education. It literally reminds me 25 years ago when we started selling sports sponsorship deals or, or you know, doing sports marketing in Asia, <laughs> you, do, you were doing, you were basically explaining the basic concept um, before you were ever getting into why they should spend a dollar there. Um, and I think that's sort of it feels now like what we're doing right now in the world of you know esports that uh, the brands sometimes just have no idea and it's quite a funny little story one of, our, one of our major sponsors right now on our team here we have a partnership with PSG Paris Saint-Germain yep. with a club here uh, with a with game we play um, and at the very beginning everyone thought we were doing some sort of five-a-side futsal or something <laughs> until they realized no, no no we're playing a You know, completely different game. You know, playing a mobile game, uh, nothing to do whatsoever with football. Besides that, our partner in this case is Paris Saint-Germain as a brand, right? Um, So that's that's just a great example of how uh, you know people still really trying to get the head around and the world of gaming is so broad as well, right? If you take FIFA yes. as a, you know, traditional, let's call it world of football there versus uh, your Apex Legend game, which is a battle royale game, which is completely different, right? Is The day is a shooter game, if you want to call it brutally what it is. And, uh, yep. and, and, and you know, and for brands to... A, appreciate it, B, understand it, the power or the difference between those things. Uh, it's not as simple, right? Now, again, part of your journey here, uh, now being inside of that, um, you know, again, this is just my experience, what I've seen. Uh, FIFA is as popular as it is and, and hugely successful, of course, as a, as its own brand, as its own FIFA, um, game, uh, it also has limitations in many parts of the world. Um, if you look at really what are the biggest games around the world, they're not traditional sports related uh, products, yep. right? Uh, whether even NBA 2K or other things like this. Um, yes, they're popular and they, ha- they have their audiences, but if you really compare it to the biggest of the biggest, whether it's League of Legends or Dota 2 or whatever, CSGO, um, there are fairly small. Um, how do you, you know, what do you, you know, think, You know, you can change that or, or this is just what it is. Um, yeah, it's again, it's a it's a it's a
1: really interesting question and debate. I think you know clearly what we have with our future uh, with our football franchise is that it's you know the beauty of general football too, right? Or real world football yep. is it's easy. The simplicity is the same. You know, I know you had Scott Levy on here recently talking about the NBA's growth and the phenomenal job that he and the NBA have done in Asia. Yep. You know, the simplicity of those two sports is they're very easy to understand. Now, I think that sort of rings true to a certain extent for sports simulation games and it's probably a little bit easier for someone to pick up a you know the sticks and the controllers and play fifa or f1 because it mirrors you know real world uh, right. sport whereas uh, and you know unless you've grown up um in this generation or you know someone has educated you on the rules of league of legends or dota etc it's a little bit harder i think some of the the scale questions that you rightly or the scale of you know those games and player base is a little driven by the economics behind them too right obviously some are free to play and some are mobile centric or or rooted or uh, in, in you know the mobile platform um, and I think actually that's where part of the exciting opportunity exists for EA certainly as it relates to its future facing football franchise is that you know the ability to Bring the experience to more players around the world um, on different platforms um, in ways that it maybe hasn't historically, and I think this is the opportunity now is to take the game into even more spaces and places in the world than, than it already occupies, and you know give people the you know the EA football experience because it really is kind of blurring the lines between you know the real and the digital, and I think you know again when you look at the statistics and the numbers that the, the level of engagement that that the franchise has is phenomenal. Again, most most sports properties would uh, would absolutely crave and desire the yeah. level of.
0: You um, have some engagement numbers you can share. Um, What what is sort of public in terms of how many players you have, and and you know how many let's say daily users, etc. Do you have some numbers at the top of your head? The
1: global player base for for the FIFA franchise is about 150 million. Um, okay. And again, you know they consume. I think there was a statistic that we that we um, that we looked at a few weeks ago and we were amazed by it you know it's something like the level of engagement is they spend as much time our players you know a large portion of the players it would it would equate to them being like attending five seasons worth of Premier League football matches uh, over the course of the year if that makes sense well, so it was like ridiculous levels of engagement and consumption there it's uh, and again the, the depth and insight and intelligence that you know that the publishers have and ea certainly does on its player base is is unrivaled you know you know yeah. which which uh, which consoles which platforms they're playing on what times they're playing which players they're selecting which teams they're selecting which stadium venues yeah. who are the favorite players um how they're um potentially purchasing uh, fifa ultimate team which payment uh, platform you know that again that type of insight is not particularly common in the traditional sports environment because you know, the relationship is is somewhat different right so uh, i i think it you know the world of gaming and eSports has a hugely exciting future i do think it needs to be to your point demystified a little bit and i think it just needs a bit of time to continue to mature and develop i have no doubt that you know a it's here to stay and will only increase in in relevance you know again those of us that have kids only need to you know, look at the behaviors of our, our children and and how they're consuming media and sport and entertainment to see that the world is definitely changing for good and bad, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I had Pete uh, Blastica, uh, Blastica, I think his last name, he was at that time the president and CEO of Activision Blizzard Esports. So and, yeah. and he helped build the uh, Overwatch and Call of Duty League and we went, you know, in, a lot of detail of how they build it, um, how they model it after, you know, the NBA and other parts to uh, to bring, you know, the ownerships in and et cetera. Uh, is that something you guys are looking at as well, trying to build something similar of that level now? If you think of football again, could be an easy one, um, or especially with the sort of departure to FIFA, which maybe it means uh, when it comes to football, you can be a little more flexible or you can do different things. Yeah, I think it was certainly
1: part of the thinking, Marcus, that, you know, seeing the success that some of uh, uh, our competitive set have enjoyed in the space, it's certainly stimulated a lot of conversation and debate at, at EA. And, again, I, I think the model and the approach has has value. And I think, you know, those that innovate first uh Enjoy sometimes the benefit and also clearly the pain of, of that yep. innovation. So, I think um, I think there is a lot of learnings you could take from from those properties and what they've created and what they've achieved. But I think, and I, again, I do think football and EA's football franchise has an opportunity to do things in a way that I can't because of the popularity of the game and global football. But it is much more complicated and complex because um, it's so heavily um, licensed and, and reliant on our on our amazing partners in the Premier League, on La Liga, our Bundesliga, or MLS, etc. So it does um, it does come with a level of complexity that no one else has to really think about in this space.
0: Yeah, no, yeah no, that makes sense. And yeah, that's why it maybe ends up being maybe one of the other games uh, we would have to do it with. Um, I can see that in, in the in the future, yeah. in the football world, is, it's hard. Now, fantastic. I mean, you know, we could keep going on and on here, but since it's obviously still a new role for you as well, I guess uh, you're somewhat also still learning um, the ropes there. Um, So, uh, yeah, we'll hopefully we can pick it up again, and you know, in the future here. But obviously, we need to, you know, and and again, you you share what you can share um, with the, you know, obviously fairly public split uh, with FIFA. Uh, What can you share a bit? What is, uh, you know, what is the company line on it?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, clearly, um, it's it's now in the public domain that that you know after a phenomenal thirty-year uh, ride together, that are separate ways from from FIFA after the end of the uh, the next iteration of the game, so FIFA twenty-three. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, look, it's, it it has been ultimately a phenomenal relationship that's massively benefited both parties. FIFA have been phenomenal partners. Um, and I think we've been phenomenal partners to them, right? We've created, again, the sort of generation-defining sports game, arguably video game, that has done a tremendous job at elevating the profile of FIFA in its tournaments and, and the game of football. So I, I think it's been, you know, ultimately and fundamentally, it's been a, been a wonderful partnership, but I think we believe that You know, now is the time to uh, pursue a different path. And we think, you know, we're doing this from a position of strength. Uh, We've created the most, again, iconic, played, consumed, talked about video game in the world. And we want to be able to be in a position to take that game and that brand and that experience to more players. Um, We want to be able to innovate and craft and shape our own destiny in a way that, that maybe wasn't possible before. So, you know, we believe that the future is bright for, for global football. We think that EA is the future of interactive football as it's, you know, as its kind of market position um, reinforces. Um, and the reality is, I think that the game and the experience will continue to... Evolve and develop, and, and become even better and bigger, and 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 more powerful than it already is. So I think everyone at EA is, you know, ultimately committed to making sure that our final year of our partnership with uh, with FIFA is is a tremendous one, and and we go out on a high and make a, the best game ever. And then I think we're, you know, really excited about what the future can bring and our ability to, said, take the brand into places and spaces maybe that it hasn't been able to in the past. So it's going to be, yeah, I think clearly it's going to be. Uh, you know an interesting you know 12 18 months but i think everyone i said is is really excited about what the future holds for the future of our football franchise and you know we are uh, you know is we there can't a wait to get-
0: is there like EA football or whatever you going to call it or not yet?
1: Yeah, EA Sports FC is the brand that we and all our partners across global football are rallying behind and we're excited to to bring this to life in in more meaningful impactful ways than ever.
0: And so again, let me just make sure I get this right now because within the game itself, as you rightly said, you have hundreds of licenses with the actual clubs and maybe in some cases even directly with players, right? Um, so that will obviously continue. There's really none of that has anything to do with FIFA anyway, right? FIFA was the sort of umbrella there i guess um lending its name and and maybe other elements to it maybe you know access i guess to the world cup maybe rights there but the rest these relationships will continue i'm assuming right
1: yeah, correct. That the reality is nothing really changes uh, in terms of the the game. To your point, you know we enjoy uh, you know amazing relationships um, with leagues, federations, clubs, players, uh, FIFA, Pro. You know all the organisations. Those continue and are locked in for, for you know a long uh, a long runway now. So nothing changes um, ultimately other than the brand. So. You know, if you're uh, you're kids or, you know, uh, players, you know, nothing changes uh, and ultimately... I think we'll be able to, you know, same game modes, same FIFA Ultimate Team, same Volta, all the things that players love currently will be there in our new universe, just under a different uh, guise. And, and I said, ultimately, I think it will further fuel innovation, creativity, uh, more platforms, more ways to experience the game than ever before. So we're, uh, yeah, we're, I think, as I said, without laboring the point, we're really excited about what the future holds. And we believe that, that you know, that the game will just go from straight the strength and also I think one of the things that I've really appreciated and realised and recognised given again the power of the game uh, and the title, particularly, uh, you know, among uh, a slightly younger audience, is that, you know, the the organization is is hugely committed to diversity, inclusion. It's hugely committed to women's football. I don't know if you've seen some of the campaigns that they ran around Ramadan. I mean, really leveraging and harnessing the power of the game to drive positive change globally is something that the business uh, is committed to. And I think you'll just see even more of that in, in the future.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I have to be honest, I mean, I'll say it out loud. I, I think the loser on this is FIFA. Um, I, I can see that for EA there is, as you said, maybe not that much change. It has a change of name. um, But for FIFA trying to rebuild this, which is obviously sort of their side of the story, uh, from the sound of it at least, I think it would be tough. So, well, interesting. Good luck to everyone, I guess, on that one. We'll yeah. watch and see from no, the we, side. We're-
1: yeah, we wish them nothing but success. As I said, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll continue to, you know, to go from strength to strength. And but we're, yeah, we're excited about our future and and what we can control. And yeah, can't wait to to kind of see what the future holds for us.
0: Absolutely. Now, last one here, and and, and sort of just a fun one to wrap it up with, and and uh, and again, links to your game to FIFA, the game here. Um, this is that was what two years ago, maybe roughly, if I remember. Um, we had this crazy promotion which Burger King did with this club called Stevenage <laughs> Football Club right which was a yeah, second yeah. division team in the UK somewhere um and on the back of it obviously they created this incredible i, I don't know how they exactly they did it i'm trying to remember now the story behind it but it was everywhere right uh, and everyone ended up wearing the uh, you know showing the, the 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 jersey and and the, the ronaldo's of the world mm-hmm. ended up on, in the game um now Again, I, I think it was before you obviously joined, but I'm assuming you're you somewhat maybe aware of it and maybe you can talk a bit about it from your perspective. How did they manage to sort of hijack this and, and what a great way of doing it, I think, right?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, kudos to, to Stevenage and, and Burger King. I think effectively all they really did was, was creatively think about ways to harness the power of the game. So, um, again given the the breadth of the license agreements we have in place obviously stevenage was featured in the game so essentially they uh they constructed a partnership where they're on the obviously the front of the shirt in in real life um, yep. which you know manifested in the game correct and then they just used a you know a really again eloquent and creative approach to marketing that and rewarding players to select and use um <laughs> stevenage as their club so correct. it's sort of infused this sort of massive energy and focus around Stevenage and then you know the fifa community sort of embraced it and rewarded for selecting uh, the club and it just kind of created this uh, this tidal wave of, of of interest and exposure and excitement around uh, around the partnership again i think it was just um, a creative way to to leverage and harness the power um, that the game has. So you were rewarded, you know, you got free meals or prizes, and there were benefits for selecting selecting Stevenage players and Stevenage yeah, as a right. club rather into into the game. So it's it's really. You know, it really kind of captured the imagination of the, the FIFA community globally and obviously was, you know, did a great job at elevating the profile of Stevenage to the extent that we're talking about them. And then obviously Burger King benefited as a brand. So just creative thinking that really uh said leveraged the uh, the depth and, and breadth of the the FIFA community globally. So I'm sure we'll see more stuff like that. And again, in a in a world where there is a bit more free and clear ocean, I think we'll see brands creatively integrated into the game uh, and ultimately you know add value and bring value to the players and the fans because you know a bit like real world sport as we were talking about you know ultimately the fans are sounds a bit cliche but not meant to be you know fans are the lifeblood of any any organization and entity and it's about how you manage and look after them which is the most important thing so
0: absolutely no and and I think again you know it's just a great example of obviously first you know really creative thinking and then extremely well executed as well, that it took off, you know, and it really became, uh, you know, went viral in, in many ways around the world, um, and, and that's the part I like, you know, that it is again, it's all virtual, um, it reaches a huge, massive audience, and and I think that's what we're talking about here now at the end, anyway, you know, what, how. Uh, you know, video gaming or gaming in general, how huge it is and, and there's amazing audiences which exist around the world, uh, which brands want to come closer to and, and try to figure it out. Right? Um, and there are many interesting tricks. Um, this is sort of an indirect approach, of course, not working with EA necessarily directly, but uh, being clever around it. But there are many other ways how brands can work with you, of course, directly and, and engage with, with the with the games and the platforms you guys are having. So should be a fun time there, um, Damien. So uh, good yeah. luck there with, uh, with, with that role. I'm sure we'll talk some more. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, enjoyed it here. Yeah, enjoyed going through this and, and hearing your learnings and, and the different uh, stops in your career there. So, um, you know, enjoy the rest of the day there in London, and uh, we'll talk again soon.
1: Marcus, thank you, really appreciate the opportunity to talk, really enjoyed it and uh, good luck with the uh, the upcoming game in Bangkok. I'm sure it'll be a, be an amazing spectacle and event and uh, you can satisfy the thirst and hunger of uh, you know the football fans in Thailand with the event. So good luck with it and look forward to hopefully seeing you in London at some point.
0: Definitely appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Cheers. All right, thank All right. you bye back. bye.